Welcome to another episode of the Weekly Regular. My name is Asan. I am here uh, still social distancing, still uh, under quarantine, still uh, Brandonless uh, this week. Uh, but before I go any further, I would like to uh, shout out my best friend and tattoo artist, Brad, um, Jersey and Alex, uh, Brad's brother, Trey, his wife, Christy, their sons, uh, Hart and Knox, uh, Christy's best friend, Caitlin, uh, Steven and everyone else at the uh, Foothill Tattoo family. Uh, I beat Brandon again. A few, re- a few weeks running now. Uh, we're back here um, for another episode, and I am joined once again by uh, a good friend of mine who helped me go through uh, a few different things last week, told me all about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and all of that. Um, But I decided to bring him back uh, because he's dope and really funny. Uh, Philosophy Drew. What's up, Drew? What's up? I just want to review the fact that you have a really long shout out to start off your your thing. I I was worried you're going to start naming like all your family members and friends and stuff. (laughs) um no so uh I, <laughs> and you love tattoos apparently that's your only, only thing you're love, passionate about I, it's the only thing i'm passionate about well that that started uh we brandon when brandon is the, you know the normal co-host is here we typically end the show with a shout out segment and it uh i don't know how it came about first but i would sh- oh it's because my friend brad owns a tattoo shop and he's one of my best friends. And I told Brad that I would shout him out every episode if he promised to listen to every episode. Uh, um, and so it became a thing between Brandon and I, like, who can be the first one to shout out Brad in the podcast? And it, it got earlier and earlier in the podcast every time. And now that Brandon is not here, I can do it. Uh, just start it off. Yeah, I can do it with impunity because he's, he's not here, you know, so. Nice. So yeah, that's how the uh, the shout out to Brad started, uh, and so now it's yeah it's and each time uh, each time we do the bit, like I add another person in Brad's life uh, <laughs> that I shout out. So it's become this long string of names and Brad's family tree. So that's how it goes. But uh, yeah, uh, so we're here, we're back. Uh, thank you for doing the show again. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, man. Uh, okay, so uh, you last week you were on the show and we were talking about Bitcoin because you're very passionate about cryptocurrency and, and all of that. And I think that was a really cool conversation. I've gotten some good feedback on that. Um, this week I want to tap into your philosophy brain and I would like to, uh, yeah, man, just throw some topics at you. Normally the show functions as like a, a, a comedic sort of, uh, I wouldn't say commentary. That sounds like too serious of a word, but like sort of a comedic, uh, conversation about current events. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it'd be cool to try it with you as a stand-in co-host with a philosophy slant to it. So we can just have a conversation about current events, s- some not-so-current events, just whatever our mind kind of goes to, and then we'll just figure it out from there. Sure. But uh, yeah, man, so how is, uh, how's your week going? Anything interesting? Uh, it's pretty good. I, uh, I'm going down to San Diego this weekend um, nice. just to hang out with my family. We're, our family, because we had a... Our first son a couple months ago, we've been seeing my parents, but that's about it. So we'll be mm-hmm. with my parents and my brother this weekend. So um, excited about that to get out of the house because we've been stuck here for, you know, two months like everybody else. But, yeah. And yeah. are you, you're from San Diego? No, no. I, uh, I grew oh, okay. up in Glendora. Glendora. That's right. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, what part of San Diego is your family in? Uh, they're on Coronado Island. Oh, nice. Yeah. Is that the uh, is that the island where like the buffalo are? 
No, I think you're thinking of Catalina. Oh, is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah, yeah. Catalina has Buffalo, but... Uh, What's the difference? Cor- uh, well, Catalina is outside LA, but yeah. If you, if you look straight <laughs> okay. out from Long Beach, that's Catalina. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And Coronado is... Coronado is actually area. a peninsula. I think they. I think it used to be an island, and that's why it's called Coronado Island, but now it's a peninsula. But yeah. Because uh, of the, uh, the hole in the ozone layer and global warming has dropped the sea level? Is yeah, that why? something like that, or socialism, or I'm not really sure what you know, how it came about, but something like that. Socialism. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Um, all right. So, uh, I guess we could start with, uh, I, so after we were, we talked a little bit about self-driving cars last week, um, and the ethics behind said, uh, uh, technology and you, uh, when we were done with the conversation and done with the podcast, you sent me a link to a, uh, an animation, like a Ted talk animation thing about the ethics of self-driving cars that kind of elaborated on your arguments and stuff like that. I thought that was a really, I thought that was a really good animation. I thought that was really good and insightful. Um, so we can just touch on a few points from, from there. Um, all right. So, uh, just cause I had some final thoughts on that. Um, so I just wanted to, to clarify. So because the video makes the point, and you made this point too, but the video basically makes the point that, uh, uh, you know, a human being driving a car in the, like, remember the illustration you made about, like, you know, you're stuck behind a truck that drops something heavy and you have to choose between hitting an SUV or hitting a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And the video classifies this difference as, like, if it's a human person driving, it's a reaction versus if it's a, it's a, if it's a computer driving, it's a decision being made a reaction versus a decision um and the implication is that the decision is 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 somehow less preferable or somehow more malicious than than the human reaction um but i I, but my question is more so about sort of in the philosophy territory since your philosophy drew this week what is uh in in a deterministic world i guess we can start there do you believe to a certain degree that the world or the universe is deterministic? Uh, I think that that's where logic and science lead us. Um, but I don't know if we should, I don't know if it has as big of ethical implications as most people would have you believe or people that generally believe in determinism. But yeah. Did you, uh, did you watch the show devs on Hulu yet? Devs like D E V D E V S. No, I haven't seen it. Uh, you should. It's a. Um, it's by Alex Garland, the guy who did like Annihilation and a few other things. Uh, it's like a mini series about. It's in the. It, the show is all about kind of determinism and sort of the the logical conclusions of where det- a deterministic worldview combined with like a giant tech company can get you. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy like watching. It. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so say we're, t- so you, you think science and, and, uh, and logic takes us to a deter- leads us to a deterministic worldview. Yeah, yeah. So in, in an, ter- in a deterministic worldview, and then, so that's one, that's one presupposition we should go with. The second presupposition is, uh, and I can gauge where you fall on this. Uh, do you have a materialistic view of the mind in terms of like how thoughts arrive? Is, is the mind a sum total of of biomechanical parts essentially is what I'm asking you. Yeah, I'd say generally that would be my that would be my your, thoughts. Your I mean something something physicalist. Um right. I'm not I don't have big opinions on what version of that um because there are all kinds of Great. debates related to that, but yeah. 
Gotcha. So if that is the case, so taking the presupposition of a deterministic world and sort of like a physicalist, materialist view of the mind, what then is the difference between a, uh, a reaction from a human brain and, and a reaction from a computer? So I'll kind of flip that around because I, I realized something, I, I mean, this happens in any conversation, but you, you don't realize the entire context and then forget mm -hmm. things. Um, but I, I was realizing something after we talked that that clip reinforces that I, I didn't really reinforce enough. But the point is that it's not really a computer that's making the decision. It's mm -hmm. the programmers making the decision ahead of time. And all the, all the computer does is execute according to the program that it was given from these gotcha. programmers, right? And so mm -hmm. I would say that um, I, I get where you're going with that question, but I think the real question is, is there an ethical difference in um, someone reacting, right? Like making a split second decision versus mm -hmm. somebody sitting down and mapping out what the car is going to do or mapping out a decision ahead of time. And I would say that the general sentiment would be if someone has the time to map something out and make a decision, then that decision has bigger um, weight or bigger ethical content, content than a reaction as opposed to comparing the way that computers operate versus the way that um, human minds operate. Because the truth is that the computer is only operating the way that a human mind um, made it operate and plan these things out, right? So one of the things that's in the video is it talks about, you know, uh, you know, it's just, it's deciding, that the computer is deciding or it's executing functions to decide who lives or dies. And right. the, the truth is that the programmer makes those decisions um, and they have to be utilitarian because I don't really know how else they would operate. Um, and then mm -hmm. seemingly they operate um, or the complexity of those decisions could be a lot bigger, right? So let's say, um, you and I are in one car mm -hmm. and then, and so, so we'll do that same scenario. So a car can either turn left or right. You and I are in one car and we're on the left uh -huh. and, um, you know, the president is in the car on the right, right? Somebody who's actually important. Uh, I, you could probably speak well, in for that yourself. Scenario, you definitely, you definitely go right in that scenario. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe this president is a little bit different. Maybe we need to be careful about, you know, making threats, but, um, we'll say, we'll say somebody like neutral, uh, you know, like Reagan, somebody that everybody loved. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> kidding. Or the prophet, or the prophet Muhammad. The, yeah. The, 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 point prophet is, Muhammad. the point is so, somebody more important than both of you combined, right. Is in the other car. Gotcha. Um, okay. Or maybe based on age, right? So let's say that a car full of 90-year-olds versus mm -hmm. you by yourself. I think most people would say that, you know, even just one young person um, versus like a liability, right? Because these, these once you start thinking about people as numbers, especially when it's, it's, it's almost socialistic in a sense where um, how do you make the most or spread out money like most fairly, right? Um, mm -hmm. so if you think about it being governed in some sense, 90 year olds are, are basically a liability. There's, there's one guy that I always see at the golf course who's, um, I mean, even though we value them and love them, if we're just thinking about like monetary value, um, they're expensive. How's your, how's your, how's your golf game, by the way? Uh, my golf game's fine. Um, <laughs> but there's a guy that's like literally life goals. He's 95. He plays every uh -huh. day and he walks, um, it's unreal. like the entire course. Yep. He walks and, wow. and he's 95 and he'll walk no matter what. Um, there was one time I got stuck out there in like a thunderstorm and apparently it's kind of dangerous. I don't know. We never have lightning, but, um, 
in I guess on like the East Coast they have got like these lightning like cover kind of shacks on golf courses because it happens a lot and you're basically mm-hmm. walking around with a lightning rod in your hand. Anyway, he just kept <laughs> playing. He didn't care. He's like, he's yeah. like, well, if I die, I die. And that's how he talks to you. It's just like kind of funny, high-pitched, nasally voice. But anyway, yeah. back to the comment that it's seemingly never-ending, and then the programmer makes these decisions. And, and those decisions mm-hmm. you don't necessarily sign up for. I don't know if you get like a manual that told you everything that was going to happen, and then you could decide to be in the car with that. Um, so I don't mean to hijack your question, but I think that that's no, no, no. more the um, important part. So would you be... So, I mean, the counter argument to that point, I think, is that when a human being is driving the car, most times you have no idea who's in the other cars around you. I don't know if that person has terminal cancer. I don't know if the person's 90 or or 20 most of the time, especially if you're in a scenario where you don't have time to even consider that. So, I mean, ethic, eth- ethically speaking... I think, wouldn't it be more ethically responsible in that situation? Because I, I understand that you start getting to a slippery slope where you have a, a computer making, um, you know, ethical decisions or like moral decisions based on like <laughs> the value of life and someone yeah. being 90 versus someone being 30. I get that. But hu- most human beings don't have that decision, that, that, that data set in order to make a decision from anyway. So, I mean, would you be in favor of a self-driving car that doesn't have that data set? What if cars can't see who's driving a car and that that is that element of it is not a factor? It's simply a matter of trying to avoid as much um, damage to other vehicles as possible. Right. So, yeah, that's a, that's a different way to look at it. And that's one of the things they brought up in that video was, um, so who gets to decide what program your car runs? Right. Do we all have to run the same program or you get to buy a car that's always going to look out for you or the car is going to always try to look out for other people? Because basically what you just said was this idea that it's avoiding hurting other people. Right. Which is a different scenario. Or yeah, or causing as little damage as possible, I guess, is a a good way of looking at it. Um, I mean, I I just don't like any of it. Um, the scenario, this, the scenario where I'm okay with it is, mm-hmm. so I had this student, um, and sorry, I actually realized this after the last podcast because I keep referencing like student and I don't mean that in like a condescending way, but that's my normal context for doing philosophy is just with my students. Um, yeah. so that's my normal way of doing it. But anyway, I had this student who was really adamant about self-driving cars and the fact that, um, we'd be okay and there isn't an ethical problem. Um, but he kept talking about this hypothetical scenario in the future where, you know, all cars are on the same network um, and we can basically block mm-hmm. out all the safety problems, right? So your car mm-hmm. sees that box and can slam on the brakes fast enough and the car behind it can slam. Like, it, basically every scenario is like already thought of. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. obviously I would sign up for that too, but I just think we're, we're way, um, we're far away from that. And I think the my bigger problem is actually... So I have a problem with self-driving cars really sort of in our, our current scenario. And basically we have people buying them, wanting them, and basically trusting, you know, Father Elon to like lead us in the right direction. Um, mm-hmm. And they don't realize all of these problems. Like you and I are the 1% in terms of that are actually thinking about these ethics. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'll drive a self-driving car. Like I'm, I'm also... Have to touch I'm the also- wheel. I'm also in the 1% because I'm a billionaire. Let's just make that clear. Hey, that puts you in the point zero zero zero, you know, zero one percent So I already knew that about you, by the way. <laughs> All right. I was just, I just, you know, I don't, I, you, you don't know, have I, to I, rub I, it in I, my face. 
you know, I grew up modest. I don't like talking about myself. I just want to make it clear on a public platform that I do have a billion dollars yeah. in my bank account. Those bootstraps. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, exactly. But continue. <laughs> um, yeah, so I got a whole separate critique that like society's letting um, tech leaders basically to take us down this road and people following blindly, which I'm totally scared of. Um, you should watch also, devs. They talk about that. It, the whole show is about that. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I've, I have a major fear of that. And I generally, so this is a totally off, well, it's not really off topic, but it, but it's uh, different. Um, but, but I'm, you're also I'm really, the guy who loves Bitcoin though. Do you think there's a, a bit of cognitive dissonance going on there? No. So I'll say I have, I don't really believe in technology at all. Um, because I, th- so there's something called the um, hedonic treadmill or the hedon- hedonistic treadmill. Have you heard this term before? I've heard the term. I don't know what it it's means. It's basically this idea that um, regardless of where you find yourself in life, um, your happiness is going to generally be the same. Um, even and if right. you have major changes in your life, like my life is so different than it was five years ago. I'd say I'm like a lot more successful or something, but my happiness really doesn't change. Um, right. And you know, you might have like temp- temporary sort of excitement or happiness, but it doesn't bring lasting changes in your happiness. So I think, I think technology is like a religion. It's like a drug. Um, people think that we're going somewhere and I don't think we're going anywhere. Um, it's just that, you know, I had the iPhone 10 and the iPhone 11 comes out and that makes me smile for a couple months and then I'm bored of it. And I don't think we go on any upward trajectory. It's just little bumps, right? Um, well, so, some technologies are not simply cosmetic, though. I mean, some technologies do increase quality of life. Right, but then we get used to them, mm-hmm. right? So the, the reason the reason why, you know, so my grandma got cancer two years ago, and she was like, I mean, she's fine, she's recovered. I mean, she wouldn't okay, want great. she wouldn't want me saying that uh, because it was <laughs> it was a struggle. Uh, but but course, the, the point course. is that modern medicine, like. You know, they were able to assess the situation. I think she was like stage two or something, which is like kind of sure, dangerous. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, the point is that she was like seventy. I think she's eighty now, so she must have been like seventy eight, seventy seven when she got it, and she was stage two. And because of modern medicine, our general expectation is that like she's going to survive, right? Right. So all that did it did the same thing. It just changed our um, what our baseline was, right? And so people keep living longer and longer and longer and we keep being able to save more and more things. And I realize it sounds like really like I'm being really trivial or flippant about this, but that's what happens when you do philosophy sometimes. Um, and it also is easy to say from the, from the first world. Um, but I just, I did I don't think we're going anywhere. Um, even, even when it comes hmm. to like saving lives and stuff, um, because I think you're just, you're, you're just creating new baselines for happiness. You're not actually increasing general happiness. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't mean it's not worthy of pursuing. Right. My critique is more just the fact that people believe believe in this stuff like it's a religion that we're actually going to some. We're going to get to heaven. Basically, they think it's like salvation through technology, mm-hmm. right? Like we're going to get to some state where things are like infinitely better. Um, and I don't think that that's the way the world works at all. Um, uh, what if I were to tell you that a wise man once said, "Heaven is still heaven, even if you don't know you're there." Uh. I've never heard that quote. Who is that? Drew, can I, can I tell you a secret? Go for it. That person is me. I said that. Oh, okay. Well, so we're on the same page then. <laughs> well, I think, so I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I, and I would agree about the shifting goalpost of happiness. And, uh, but I will say that like, even if f- paradise is still paradise, even if 
our our like perception of it doesn't adjust well to it because human beings never adjust well to i mean i don't want to not adjust well but we have a we have a because we're like I think it. I think it's rooted in our biological imperative to try to like spread our genes as much as possible. Like we always want more, e- even though. But I think that drive to want more raises. It raises, you know, the, the 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 tide for everyone. Even if we're not in a position where we're like ready to appreciate it, we still reap the benefits of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I. Uh... Like even if now I expect to live to a hundred, whereas like a hundred years ago I would only expect to live to seventy or something. Yeah. Like. I, I may still be unhappy with living to 70 now because of the light, but it's still, we still are all reaping the benefits of now expect being in a place where we can expect to live until a hundred. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I generally agree with that. The, the only, mm-hmm. the counterpoint to that, that I've thought about a lot, um, mm-hmm. Is you know you look at this is always the the stereotype of like starving kids in Africa right but you look but right. they're like the continent of the, the poorest continent right but you look at people in Africa um, and you look at their happiness rates like there are studies done on yeah. this and they're no more or less happy and in a lot of cases more happy than people in the first world um, which kind of just like perverts all of that right and and the fact that we see in wealthy countries some of the highest suicide rates um, totally and it's like maybe we're actually going backwards um, as opposed to even going forwards. Like, are we even getting, are we even getting a new baseline or are we just getting unhappy? Um, You know, there's that quote that's Mm -hmm. something like, you know, atheism is the luxury of the rich um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you find yourself in desperate situations and you can't do anything about it other than call on God. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. And then you find yourself in, in some of these, you know, social democracies in the West where, you don't really have to do anything um, to survive. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you don't have a need for religion. And so all of a sudden life also doesn't have any meaning, like period. Um, and I'd say that this is where I might even come off kind of conservative, but it's like the struggle in life that like makes it worth living. Um, I don't know. Like, like, no, like I, you see, like, I guess Andrew Yang has said this, you can, you're the Yang gang, so you can tell me, but I feel like guys <laughs> like him have this vision of the future where artificial intelligence is going to like help us. Right. And we're not going to have mm-hmm. to do anything other than live like lives of leisure. But you look at like, mm-hmm. you look at rich kids, right. And yeah. all of, all of the problems that they have, they invent their own enemies because life needs these struggles. Right. It's like, you see these kids that are born into like billionaire families and it's mm-hmm. like, dude, you could have done anything with your life. And instead you didn't graduate college and, you know, became a drug addict. Like what the hell? Um, and, and I think a lot of people envision like the future of like machines creating this live life of leisure for everybody. But I don't think anybody actually wants that. Um, well, I, I think now, now we're getting into it, Drew. I think, uh, everything you just said is super interesting and pertinent. And like, to that point, I think the, I think, um, the vision of the future that Andrew Yang and people like that who are embracing AI. Well, did I, did um, I categorize him correctly? I mean, I, I barely know anything about him. Him. I don't think he's as, um, I don't think he's as optimistic about AI, like, 
creating a utopia necessarily. I think he's adamant that like AI is definitely going to be in the future. And if we, if we prepare for it correctly, we could have a utopia, I think is more of his mindset, which is why he's a fan of things like universal basic income, which I want to get to. Um, that was actually on my list of topics for today. But before we get there, I just want to set up by saying, I think you're absolutely right. I think what we're seeing right now, um, manifesting itself in a lot of different ways is I think as a human species for the last however many thousands of years we've been around hundreds of thousands of years or whatever we've been as a species that works in together in societies I think it, we've had this mindset where and it ebbs and flows obviously but I think we've on average have embraced this mindset that our worth to our community and therefore our worth to ourselves is based in something external, uh, whether it be for in large part for a capitalist society, it's what can we contribute to society in terms of what we can create either with our own ingenuity or with our time that we're sacrificing at work or with how much revenue we can generate, how much we can, how much money we can spend, how many things we can buy. Um, at other points in history, uh, it's been like, uh, externally, like the value has come from, you know, some external deity, uh, or some, some, some sort of caste system, um, some sort of like hierarchical structure. Like we, we as human beings have been served well to find external sources of validation, but I think we're at a point now where we're starting to see, um, the flaws and uh, the symptoms that come with needing that. Um, and I think that manifests itself in a lot of ways. And there's, I mean, there's all kinds of things I want to get into that kind of touch up against this uh, with guns and everything else. But um, the more and more we, we, I think the more advanced we become as a society and the, and, and AI um, uh, is figured in this because AI, the more and more we become dependent on technology uh, and the more we understand about the universe and need technology in order to, to master the universe, if you will, like the more and more we realize that we don't have as much control over the outside world as we think we do or is required of us. And the more and more that that happens, the more and more we feel inadequate as people. So the more and more that AI and robots and machines and stuff do, we're going to feel less adequate or less validated because that's where all of our validation comes from is working and how we spend our time creating and, and what we can, what, you know, what we can spend and how much revenue we can generate. I think Andrew Yang would say, uh, and anyone who's for a, a form of basic income or something like that is saying, look, we have to shift our values from saying, oh, you're valuable to this community because you generate X. You're, you're valuable to this community because you can create or build X. You're valuable to this community because you spend a certain amount of time working for X company. We have to shift those value systems from an external one uh, to an internal one where we value, where you're valuable as part of this community simply because you're a part of it. And I think it sounds crazy and it sounds hippie and it sounds even, you know, uh, like there's shades of communism in there, Marxism <laughs> or whatever. But I think that's, I think that's where we have to go because what I think a lot of, you know, the rich kids who, you know, develop drug problems and kill themselves cause they're bored or whatever is not because of, um, a lack of, there's plenty of things in the world they can go do. You know, there's plenty of things a rich guy can go do if he has nothing else better to do. It's not for a lack of things to do. It's not boredom. I don't call it boredom because I don't think it is boredom. I don't think it's... I would it, call it, what it just it the, the lack of obvious obstacles. They have to create them right. instead of them being part of their existence. But yeah, go right. ahead. It, right. And uh, well, I would even say... 
I, w- I would hesitate to use the word obstacle because I think obstacles are a tool to help you gain the perspective that I don't think you necessarily need obstacles to realize. Does that make sense? So obstacles are a tool like like um, obstacles are a tool to help you realize a perspective that you don't necessarily need obstacles to have. You can be a rich guy and still be um, and and you can be a rich guy born into wealth and still realize that there is. Well, if you're, inherent the, if you're value. Like guy, Donald Trump, he got that small loan of a million dollars from his dad. Just a, <laughs> just a minuscule just loan a tiny, from his pappy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's all. There, have you ever seen the IT crowd? No, what's that? It's a BBC like comedy. Oh no, man! About, you watch a uh, lot of shows. <laughs> I I am a I'm a TV and movie guy, man. Yeah. Uh, but there's a show called The IT Crowd. It's not on anymore, but it was like a really successful like workplace comedy about two IT guys who work at like a big corporation. Uh-huh. And the <laughs> the head of the corporation in the first episode is giving a speech to his board members, and he's like, "Gentlemen, when I started this company, he's like, I had two things. Uh, I had a dream." And six million pounds, <laughs> which is, you know, which is funny. Yeah. But uh, I, I think I think obstacles are a good way. But I guess the point so, is that he still did something, right? Right. He, he still did something. But I think the point is, like, we need – I think what we're seeing is, a, is people feeling a lack of purpose and yeah. a lack of value because they don't see anything that – I think what rich people realize and what makes them really sad, and I'm, you know, I have a billion dollars, so I can speak to this, yeah. is they, 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 they get to this position in life where they're supposed to be really important because they have a lot of money. But what they realize is, no matter how much money you have, the world still moves on without you. You know what I mean? Like life and everything we're doing here, like the big grand scheme of things, yeah. is still going to happen whether or not you're here. So even with the most amount of money, the most amount of power, the most amount of most amount of influence, if you were to die tomorrow, the world is still going to move on. Life is still going to happen. And I think with so without an inherent sense of value or purpose to your life, you, and if you're always trying to pursue that value from an external source, even from some kind of deity, um, and we can get into that too, I think you're always going to be chasing that. Um, and you're always going to come up short because there is no value to find out in the world. That's, that's, that's the big joke of it all. The value is the value, the true value that transcends can only be found from within. That's like, uh, the only thing that really matters. And so I think it's very existentialist of you. Yeah. And so I guess the point I was making about obstacles is obstacles are a real easy way. It's kind of like, it's kind of like it's kind of like hurdles when running track. So you could just run the four by one hundred, like you could just do that. You could run the four by one hundred, run. I, don't, I think that's four laps around or whatever. Maybe it's just one lap. But in order to be the best at the four by one hundred, what do you have to do? You have to train, run fast, and you have to focus on what's ahead of you. Because if you get distracted and you you lessen up your stride a little bit, you're going to get beat. Hurdles can be a good thing to practice. If you're just even if you don't run the hurdles event, the four by 100 with hurdles can be a great event to practice with, because what the hurdles do is they remind you if you break focus even once, that could mean the whole race. It's harder to see that when there are no hurdles in front of you. But if if you do that with hurdles, you're going to hit the hurdle and fall down. It's going to hurt in a regular four by 100. There aren't any hurdles to remind you of that, but you still have to have the same amount of focus. So what I was saying, basically, that's an illustration to say, like, obstacles are like the most obvious and easy and most easily accessible way to gain the perspective of having an internal value system. But we all need to have an internal value system, even if you don't have any obvious hurdles in life. And I think it makes it harder, harder if you don't have any hurdles, which is why rich people, 
are killing themselves and, and, and developing drug habits because, you know, it's harder for them because they don't have that perspective that is only gained or, or seems to only be gained with, with obstacles. So I think we're right, but I think... Yeah, I got, I, I'm starting to take notes we because we. Uh, I think last podcast we did uh, shorter monologues, um, but we both have been <laughs> we both have been going on for a while. So I was jotting down the multiple things you said, um, yeah. but I realized something on the obstacles front. I would say that I think, I think that is part of humanity, um, but I'd say that it's uniquely a part of me and who I am, and maybe that's why I yeah. see the world that way. Um, so I grew up playing hockey, um, mm-hmm. and then I played like, you know, kind of, you have all your teeth. Uh, no, I don't. My two front teeth are fake. <laughs> are they really? Yeah. Yeah. And is that from hockey? Um, well, I broke them multiple times. I think only once was from hockey, but it's like playing street hockey. Jesus. Cause when you're a kid, you have to wear a full mask anyway. So the odds of like losing teeth as a kid is pretty slim. Okay. Let me, let me make a point about this because I think this is very interesting. All right. I, I joke, my girlfriend who is white, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a brother who is like, and, and, <laughs> I, lovingly because I love this guy, but he is like, he is like a white guy, you know? Okay. <laughs> like he, he, he's the stereotype like, of a white guy. I get that a lot about me. So yeah, like he, he, he can't like, like instead of chilling, he'd rather jump off of something, you know? Like okay. if we go to if we go to Hawaii and there's a cliff, instead of standing at the cliff and be like, "Man, this is beautiful," he's like, "No, nah, I want to jump off." Well, of that's it. me, one hundred percent. And and I would argue, and obviously that's how like, I got into punk, dude. I was literally like, "Why play music slow if you can play it fast?" <laughs> well, there you I, go. I'm not even kidding. I used to say that when I was in high school. Like, why play slow if you can play fast? And that yeah. was my whole uh, idea. Or why why scream if or why sing if you could scream, right? That's true. So I think I think and obviously I'm of the I'm of the mindset where I do think race is one like skin color is one of the least interesting things we can talk about somebody uh, as a descriptive. And I, I think it should be the goal to make it that way. Um, Sam Harris says it all the time. Yeah, that, like, we'll get to that at some point. Skin, skin color should be as as an important descriptor as someone's hair color, yeah. which I do agree with to a certain extent. But because of the way this country was founded and the all the institutions that reinforce it, race is still somewhat of a uh, speaks somewhat to someone's cultural um, identity. But I, I feel like uh, <laughs> a lot of white guys, right, have this drive to like. It's not necessarily a destructive drive, but it's a drive to derive some kind of either thrill or obstacle out of life because there may be they may they may experience a lack of obstacles otherwise. And that's something I've never needed personally. Like, I feel like just for a lot of people just existing and sort of like living their lives is enough, like brain stimulation well, and anxiety. That, that's, to, you know what that's I mean? my wife for sure. And I'm on the exact opposite for me. I'd say it has to do more with my ADHD than anything else because I'm striving, Maybe. striving for stimulation. But there's, a, do you remember that? Um, there's that ceremony song throwing bricks, I think is what it's called. Um, but there's a line in it that says, uh, what good is your heart if it doesn't break? Um, and for sure, that's the way I look at the world for sure. (laughs) And maybe it's a little perverted, but so where I was going with the hockey thing is that I, uh, uh, it was expensive and we had to like drive around a lot. And my parents basically said the world doesn't revolve around you. Uh, you're a golfer now, which to most people sounds like, okay, so you traded like one expensive sport for another (laughs) golf golf's actually like incredibly cheap. Um, people don't realize 
So if you live in LA County um, and you're under 18, you can play any of the county golf courses for $5. Um, and there's literally basically no activity that you could drop your kid off for five hours for $5. But anyway, the point is that it was, it was actually a lot more convenient. No legal activity. Yeah, anyway. It was a lot more convenient, and a lot cheaper. But anyway, I, I never thought I'd be a golfer, but the reason why I like it is kind mm-hmm. of sadistic. It's because you can never really win. Um, right. You might be always playing against yourself. Right? You're always playing against yourself and you always make mm-hmm. mistakes. Um, right. And that's why I like it, which is, is, uh, it's this obstacle thing. It's like I'm always – I wouldn't say I play golf for fun. I, I always say that. I just like it because I'm working on something, and it's really mm-hmm. hard, and I can't win. Um, but I like – so the thing that you were saying about, like, getting worth from uh, external sources and AI taking that away um, is pretty interesting. I actually haven't thought of that before, but um, – Yeah, Not I that think there that's, aren't things I haven't thought yeah. of before, but is, is that is – that, is that what people like Yang are saying? I don't know that. Yes. I don't know yes, enough totally, about that stuff. Totally. Um, Andrew Yang, uh, the biggest problem with technology is not that uh, robots are taking over factory jobs. And like, it's it's not that. The, the And we're not going to have some way to pay people. We're always going to have a way to pay people, as this, this virus is showing. What it really is, is there is a lack of purpose because people's purpose is right now tied to how many hours they put in at the job, how, how, how they can crush it at their factory job or their like <laughs> assembly, assembly line job. You know what I mean? And that's just the, the opportunities for that to, to gain validation from that type of work is just not going to be there in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, we saw it with coal miners in West Virginia. That's like his, his, his staple example is like an entire industry or automobile factories in Detroit, you know, in, in entire communities, entire States, their communities are based on, uh, you know, my generation goes and works at the coal mine. My son's going to do that. And that's what we do. We're coal miners in this <laughs> family. But as soon as those opportunities are shut down, now you in – in those same places, now you have opium crises. Crises. That's the word, crises. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, – and those things are correlated because people – I feel a lack of purpose combined with a lack of resources and that equals depression, you know? Yeah. And I've – and it, it's – I mean – and it's not just in manufacturing jobs and robots in 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 production. It's also, I mean, that's why social media. Now we have online bullying and things like that because people's whole identity is tied up into their Instagram page and getting likes and things like that. That they instead of an internal sense of beauty or like validation, they're looking to some algorithm induced system of rating to give yeah a high. And once that goes away for one reason or another, whether it's caused by another human being or not. Like Instagram could change their algorithm tomorrow and those same people who have a million likes on a photo have zero likes because some number was wrong in the algorithm. And people don't think about that. But if that were to happen tomorrow, so many people would be depressed. Like so many people like wake up every morning with the with the expressed goal of looking at their Instagram feed and seeing how many likes their picture got. And if the algorithm is wrong one day. I mean, how many people are jumping out of their window? You know, I hate to be morbid, but like it's a reality. Like we have to. You know what I mean? We have. Yeah, it's where we live. Like we have to be, we have to ground ourselves in sort of realistic and also internal senses of value because we're always going to be chasing it, chasing it. If not, our moral imperative as a society, if that's what we're going to do, if we're going to be a society that values each other as equals, then I think our moral imperative is to try to mitigate hurdles in life that are based on pure bad luck. So, like anything that like has to do with like. 
not being born into the right situation in terms of like healthcare, um, food, shelter, um, even education, because I think education is like a foundational thing at like healthcare and shelter. Like, I think all of those things should not serve as a hurdle to, to build someone's character. I, I just think that makes the playing field unfair. And if we really value each other as equals, we shouldn't want to, we shouldn't want to see anyone have to go through hurdles that they in some way, are, are set up against them at birth. Do you know what I mean? So like, I think universe, the idea of some kind of universal basic income is probably the most fair way to try to mitigate that. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think that like healthcare, you know, things like that should be a hurdle for someone trying to, um, realize their fullest potential. So I do endorse the idea of a universal basic income. Cause I think that's the only, that's like the fairest, like logistically simple way to do that is eliminate as much of the, cost of living and like those kinds of hurdles as much as possible from anyone no matter like who they are what situation they're born into you know and you, you can comment on that and react to it all right so just to cut to the chase i guess i'll say i'm for ubi um i just am for it for probably different reasons than than you are um okay. so obviously you were talking about how um, we want to mitigate people's luck um and I think that that goes both directions in the fact that people that are born into lucky situations um, shouldn't necessarily be rewarded for luck in the same way. Um, but I think society is a lot less okay with helping people that are in situations of having bad luck. Um, right. But, you know, I, at 5'8", at I was never going to be a basketball player. And I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure how bad I feel about that or, or whether, <laughs> whether that's because I don't even like basketball to begin with, but, um, right. and I do like basketball, but apparently not enough to pursue it. And I don't know whether that was dictated by my height or my, um, you know, w- what I actually like. And I think the idea of accommodating people's bad luck, um, kind of has no ends. And then mm-hmm. on a, on a different note, I think that people's goals are shaped by their abilities and, mm-hmm. and what they're born into and their satisfaction is shaped by that too. So I, I'm not sad that I'm not a professional basketball player now. Uh, and so I would say that people actually do shape their expectations on life based on what they were born with. And then they get satisfaction based on that. Right. So if you're right. born, if you're born as Trump's son, um, you, your goals are going to be a lot bigger and your expectations on life are going to be a lot bigger than people that aren't born into that same situation. Because right. so, really, I think what you're trying to mitigate is unhappiness or lack of satisfaction in life. And I would say that people's abilities, um, people's abilities or, or what they're born into is actually less related to that. I would say artificial barriers are, are bigger. Um, mm-hmm or mindset is a bigger scenario than, than the unluckiness, I guess, as we call it, because, um, I don't need a ton out of life. Uh, but I think people that are born with a ton need a lot more and people that are born with less need less. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's totally factual, but when I, when, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue for UBI because of that. I would argue for UBI because of all the red tape involved in the way that current, systems are implemented. Um, so I, I used to work and kind of still work in employment tax credits. Do you know what employment tax credits are? 
no. Why don't you explain it for me? Everybody's going to fall asleep, so I'm not going to talk about it for too long because nobody <laughs> wants to talk about taxes. But okay. basically, the government, and this is just one example, we got all kinds of different um, you know, ways that welfare is dispersed um, in our country. Uh, but this is one way that it's dispersed, and it's incredibly wasteful. So the government will pay employers to hi- hire people from certain groups. Um, mm-hmm. And so these might be people that are on food stamps. Or you might just be unemployed. If you're unemployed for six months, you're worth $2,400. If you're a veteran um, and you're a veteran that's been unemployed for one month, you're worth $2,400. If you're a veteran that's disabled, you're worth $9,600. Anyway, um, these these systems are in place to you know help people that are basically disadvantaged. And right. what's interesting about the programs is they're actually supported by Republicans and Democrats because from a business side, it's like, hey, you want to give me money to hire people, right? And Republicans right. are stereotypically pro-business, and then Democrats like them because it's helping people that are disadvantaged. Um, well, these systems cost, well, they're really hard to, to do yourself. So as a mm-hmm. business owner, if you're trying to screen people, you have to do these ridiculous tax forms that are so hard to understand and figure out whether people qualify or not. Right. Um, and so the vast, vast, vast majority that's distributed is through companies that provide a service. Um, to help you take advantage of the taxes, right? And then they have these agencies set up in every state that actually approves the applications and processes the certifications. So we have a ton of money, a ton of money. And you think about the way that our tax, like how much money is in like just accounting, right? Like, you know, accounts helping people with their taxes and TurboTax and all this crap. Um, I just, I think our current system is insanely wasteful and ineffective. Um, And I, but I think at the same time, the vast majority of Americans are okay with giving money to people that need it. Um, and I think you can give a lot more to money to people that need it with UBI and a lot more efficiently um, than the way that the current systems work. Um, and that's probably why I would be more okay or why I might argue for UBI as opposed to, um, I guess, the what kind of what you're saying or maybe the Yang um, scenario is that people got to find a way to find their self-worth, right? Right. Yeah, maybe you want to say more about that. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Uh, I think what you said is really interesting. I think the ground floor, we have a ground floor agreement, though, I think. So uh, let, let me talk about this, because I think this is uh, this will illustrate your point even more for people who don't understand tax codes. Um, in the NFL, <laughs> <laughs> so the NFL, the National Football League, um, maybe you've heard of it, um, <laughs> the NFL, uh, I believe, employs uh, about 70% or more African-American players, right? Or players of color, non-white okay. players, right? Um, That's actually higher than I thought, but okay. Um, so there's about 70% of the players are not, are quote unquote non-white. Okay. The, of coaches, uh, of coaches, whether assistants or head coaches there, I, I forget the percentage head coaches. There's maybe, I think there's a handful of head coaches right now. There's three, maybe three to five. And when you get into owners, non-white owners, it's like it's, it's like none. There's maybe one or two who are non-white, but they're definitely not black, right? Uh-huh. Um, so the NFL, what they tried to do was they tried to pass a a hiring incentive for all the franchises, the different teams, that if you were to hire. Uh, they had this whole system laid out of hiring incentives based on draft picks. So if you hired certain coaches, certain GMs uh, that were non-white, um, you got you, your draft pick would would if for a player. I think it was for a uh, like an assistant coach. Your draft pick uh, in the first round moves up 
six points or something like um, six slots. And if you hire a head coach, it moves up 10 slots. If you hire a GM, there's something else, right? This is um, a real thing. This was a real thing they tried to pass. They were trying, so they were trying to get more not white people in management and the trade off was to get higher draft picks. Yes. That's I know so it sounds weirdly disconnected. It sounds crazy, and I was I was actually very happy it didn't go through. So the basically any decision made by the like the league that affects uh, affects all the teams has to be voted on by all the owners. Of uh-huh. course, they they voted this down, um, and I agree. I think it's um, so. Here's the thing. And I think this illustrates well the point that I wanted to make about uh, about the sort of the tax incentives for hiring people of color. I think what what both of those things are trying to do the tax incentives for hiring people of color and the 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 draft incentives for hiring uh, you know management positions of color in the NFL. They are trying to equalize um, an outcome um, rather than addressing uh, the core issue of inequality of opportunity and i think uh anytime you try to do that not only is it gonna cost a lot more money and be a lot less effective but it's going to be offensive and not just to people who are white or don't consider themselves non-white or people who feel disadvantaged because you know they they feel that people of color are getting some kind of advantage they're not uh it just it, it it kind of is a slap in the face to people of color because to equate or put a price on hiring a black person to a certain number of draft picks or even a certain dollar amount um, for a company is kind of disrespectful, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, yeah. Well, so to be clear, these programs that I'm talking about, um, none of them are racial except right. for there's it's called like the Indian Hiring Act or something. I don't remember. Right. But if you hire Native Americans in certain states there's a kickback but yeah right. but you're talking about it in the context of the nfl so yeah right 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 so um any even for veterans or anything like that i think there's just i think you're 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 walking up a slippery slope trying to put a dollar amount to the what people's luck bad luck or whatever you want want to call it has has cost them so i i think what we have to be in more in the business of doing is equalizing opportunity so that if so in the context of the NFL situation, uh, what I was having a discussion with my friend about this, and this was completely off the cuff. I don't know if this is the most effective way to do this, but I, th- I, I thought a better way to go about trying to get more people of color, because I do think that that is a noble aspiration to get more people of color represented at a, a leadership level that used to be and has historically been exclusatory of, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, exclusatory towards people of color or basically anyone who is not a white man exclusionary maybe maybe that's the word i don't know yeah to anyone who's not a white man i think yeah. that's a noble cause because especially if you have a league where 70 percent of your players are african-american or people who are not white it sure would be cool to see some of those people reflected and, in higher positions yeah you know? why do you why do you think that i actually have i don't know anything i've never thought about it but i i, I recognize exactly what you're saying but what why do you think that is that there are so many more white coaches than there are represented as players or vice versa. Yeah. I don't think it's just because of racial inequality, even though I do think that's part of it. I think traditionally in sports, um, because of racism, let's just talk about the race thing for one example. I think traditionally people of color are in, especially within a sports context, aren't viewed as smart as non 
as, as like it's kind of like people. it's kind of like the quarterback problem, right? Yeah, it's it's like the quarterback problem. It's exactly okay. that they're good enough to tackle and thro- throw and run, <laughs> but like they can't think for themselves or plan. A strategy. That's such a funny way to say that. Sorry, it's not a funny issue. But no, 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 like, no. It, no it, it's I guess absurd. It's true. Yeah, it's absurd. It, it, but that is baked into it. Like no matter how much people want to, you know, try to, it's baked into it. So historically black, black coaches have not been embraced by organizations. No one wants to be the owner to hire a black coach, that type of thing. Now there yeah. are other layers to it as well where, um, so sorry, my, the yeah, reason why I was, I want to hear the rest of you have to say so the, yeah. the reason that I was thinking about this is I don't know enough about the NFL, but right. in, in hockey, pretty much every coach was a former player, right? Is football not the same way? Football is the same way where most coaches are former players, but very but few of them ones. are for, Yes, but only the white ones because those white players were often positions that were considered okay, you know, good, yeah. good for coaching because – The quarterback, the, yeah. Yeah, because okay. they're considered smart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but they're considered okay. smart and they're able to play those positions because they're the right skin color. So, right. and, and it's not just that anymore because it is 2020 and race is becoming less uh, less of a descriptor. But there are other hurdles too to becoming like a professional like coach. There are not like coaching, especially at the NFL level. There's not a lot of obvious ways to get into that. Like, how do you go be an NFL coach? Well, I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, who knows how to do that? I mean, there are obviously avenues to do that. You maybe start off coaching at a high school level, work your way up. Uh, Is there a certain degree that looks good on a coaching application? I don't know. I mean, there are these are all these questions that like aren't obvious, but they're more obvious to people who have family members who have done it or are their family friends with someone who's become an NFL coach. And so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that like, of course, they're going to be white because the people who know how to do it are white because yeah. that's who knows how to do it. So like what my, when I was talking to my friend about this, I'm like, if the NFL really wants to see more, like a more diverse, like management level, whatever, then the, the root problem is not, Oh, we got to incentivize teams to hire black coaches. Cause then, then what you do is you're just going to get teams who hire, who are just playing the numbers game and saying, well, we could use a good draft pick this year. Let's hire a black <laughs> assistant coach. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want that to become that either. Um, so I, I, I suggested to my friend, I'm like, what if the NFL to incentivize their teams said, okay, every team in the NFL, we're going to give you enough money to support five paid internships, um, where the target goal is to get those who are in communities who may not know how to become a head coach, but might be interested in doing that you can have it be a scholarship that the kids apply for coming out of high school that are interested in like to me those are like the those are the opportunities that like are going to allow for equal opportunity rather than trying to level out things on the backside and just you know what i mean creating more headache than not and so ubi is similar to that I think UBI, it, the, the goal of like something like that and the goal of UBI to me are the same. It's it's eliminating as uh, eliminating as many of the hurdles that are based on to uh, based on genetics or like being born into the wrong family situation or anything like that. It's trying to eliminate evenly and fairly as many of those hurdles from most people as possible. Now, because I'm especially in sports like so I want to be clear. I'm like to to your to your basketball thing you mentioned earlier you said you were five eight and you're not in the NBA. I'm all for sports and and really anything in life 
I I like I like the American dream as it's been told to us of you know the sky's the limit. You can do your. I love the idea of being in a place where you can be free to maximize your potential or even exceed your own potential as far as you want, as far as you feel like you can take it. But one thing, so like if if you want to be the next Muggsy Bogues, Drew, and like yeah. exceed and exceed your physical limitations and be you know the greatest five eight basketball player there ever was, I think you should be able to do that without the the. So if you that but it's still going to be a meritocracy and I'm fine with that. So like if you go into a basketball tryout with a guy who's 6'5", right? I want the only factors to be considered there. Sure, sure, your physical ability, your your knowledge of the game, all that kind of stuff. What I don't want to be a factor is um, the reason why that guy gets the position more than you is because your family couldn't afford to feed you as as well as they fed the other guy, or you you know you couldn't afford to get the specialized coaching because your your mom or dad or whatever couldn't figure out how to pay for coaching and also keep the lights on. Like I would much rather those those starting points for you and the six five guy to be as even as possible. And you know it's never going to be perfect, but I think. It, as long as those hurdles are big, important, foundational things, I think we're fighting an uphill battle. So, like, if you if you if you can't play sports because your family can't afford healthcare, and they and if you break your leg, it's gonna you know send your family into bankruptcy. Uh, then I don't want that to be a hurdle for you trying to get into the NBA or become a basketball player. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, I and I think th- UBI tries to do though, it, it, at least UBI in the way that I've heard it represented by you know guys like Andrew Yang and stuff like that. That's sort of the goal is to try to, you know, what can you be if you didn't have to worry about where your next meal was coming from? You know. Yeah, I I this kind of goes back to my it, again. I'm I'm for UBI. I just think maybe I'm for it for different reasons. But um, yeah. but uh, kind of back to my sadistic needing obstacles thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. The. Uh, People get really creative, and I think they perform at their best when they face adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I lived that and saw that a lot with all the time I spent in Europe. Um, so right. I did. I did one of my master's degrees in Belgium. Um, I don't know if you know that, but um, wow, they uh, they have a really weird. So this is total. This is kind of a side comment, but it's interesting. So most of the friends that I made there that I kind of still keep in contact with, and also the ones that I spent the most time with, were from Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say because they spoke the best English, um, and and the the local Belgians weren't super interested in making friends with international students as a as a general stereotype. But anyway, oh. I remember. So I I have this uh, friend from uh, well I have two friends, but one of them from Cameroon, I remember talking to him about how Belgians like live in a bubble where nothing bad happens. Um, <laughs> cause it, everything's so propped up. Um, so the classic example is, uh, the fact that they don't lock any of their bikes, hmm. um, which is crazy. Um, like they, if, if people have any kind of bike lock and Belgians ride bikes everywhere, so there are bikes all over the place. If they have any kind of bike lock, it's literally just this thing that kind of goes between the wheels. So you can't ride it, but you could just pick it up. Um, and I remember right. when we did like our intro talk, we had like this cop come in to like speak to all the international students, like saying like, um, you know, Hey, if you're, a if, uh, if you can't find your bike, if it's not outside your apartment, like don't call us. Um, you know, just check, check down the street a little ways. Chances are somebody was drunk and tried to ride it home and crashed. Um, <laughs> and that was like literally 
the case a lot of the time. Um, but I bring up my friend cause my, my, my buddy from Africa was like, he got made fun of a lot. Um, because when he got there, he, he had three bike locks. Um, he's like, yeah, yeah well we, we put one from the back tire to the frame, one to the frame to the front tire. And then the other one, you know, to the thing that we're locking and people being like, what the hell are you doing? Like, well, you don't need to right. do that here. Um, so they called it like the African yeah. bike lock. Um, but oh, I wow. say that, I say that because there's like this weird culture of like people not facing reality or really needing anything. And I'm not saying that I have a fear of that with UBI, but, um, I, I just wonder what, well, if, if, if UBI is in the context of this future AI driven world where now we need, um, you know, UBI just to like survive or something, I don't know. That's like a different way of looking at it. Um, but what is it? what are, what are people wanting out of life? Um, and I guess that's what you're saying in terms of like finding something internal. Um, but I don't know. I, 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 I'm weirdly attached to obstacles, but yeah, I I don't know. I, I, in, in these social democracies in, in Europe, which I always vote for, um, there are just really weird implications. Um, where people aren't living in reality. Like if, if all of a sudden things were lawless in Belgium, like I swear the vast majority of people would have no idea what to do because they wouldn't know like how to protect themselves or like anything. And hopefully we never get there. Um, but well, I, anyway, I, I would ask you what, so if, if all of a sudden all the laws were, you know, you know, uh, stripped away in Belgium, no, mm. there were no laws anymore. Mm. Do you think life would actually change all that much in Belgium? Um, no. And that, and th- that's actually a real use case in Belgium because they haven't had like a functioning government in like 15 years. <laughs> like when I was going there, there was like no government at the time. And for some oh, reason, wow. like stuff was still functioning. Uh, I don't really know how it works, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's more of a comment on like human nature. I don't think people right. are all that bad, but yeah. So, so I think this leads us, man, this is, this conversation is going great. Cause I think that leads us perfectly into something else I wanted to talk about. Sort of like, I wanted to get into a little bit of like guns, uh, violence, punishment, all that kind of stuff. And I mm-hmm. think it's, this is a good place to start because I do. Th- so I thought there was an interesting point that you brought up about, um, living in a way that doesn't really face reality. And I think I would clarify and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're, what you're talking about is like basically Belgians in terms of bikes, they're living a life that they're, they don't really acknowledge a fear of something happening to their bike that you think is kind of would be rational elsewhere. Right. Yeah. And maybe it's like part of just existence. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, so I do think that there are, and I have nothing to base this on other than like <laughs> maybe some like a loose marginal knowledge of like some statistics that may or may not be true. Again, this is a comedy podcast, so, it, uh, you know, don't, don't sue me, <laughs> but I do think there is a point where choosing not to, or choosing to ignore certain fears that may appear rational on the face of them are proved to be better for a society, um, especially once they scale to a certain size, than uh, living and choosing to embrace those fears. Um, in, 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 and oftentimes those lead to being uh, embracing those fears in an irrational way. And I talk, I say that um, I think the perfect example uh, for me anyway is owning a firearm. So mm-hmm. I think there is a vi- guns 
are hands down or maybe hands up uh are, are <laughs> it's a dark it's a dark joke yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh guns are hands down the most effective form of uh self-protection whether used lethally or otherwise that we have um there are other forms of self-protection but uh if one person has a gun and they're trying to attack you with their gun the 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 most equal form of protection you can have is another gun like i'm not gonna ignore that reality what about a bazooka (laughs) well uh that's i guess that's legal uh, that that's legal to own i guess i'll put that parameter on there um however um i do think that choosing to not embrace the fear of others using a firearm on you um if embraced by a large enough percentage of a population serves that population better than embracing that fear of someone using a firearm against you, especially if you live in a place where the percentage or the statistic, uh, statistical likelihood of someone using a firearm against you is relatively low. Um, now there are places where that's the, that's the, the, you know, that the algebra to run that, you know, equation is different because there are different in, you know, factors involved. Um, but I think especially in a Western North American context, um, the vast majority, and I think this is true because the vast, the vast majority of people choosing not to embrace a fear of personal firearm violence will serve the overall community better than embracing that fear. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so because because the part of um our conversation that got cut off was about race i think um we'll just swing back to it because you had that status about this recently um when you said um okay you said something like gun problems are like a white guy problem or something um and it took me <laughs> it was it was something like that um and and that's a really is that, accurate is that an exact quote. Yeah, it's not a straw man at all. Um, anyway, I had to read it like three times to figure out what you were saying. But once yeah. I figured out what you were saying, I got it, and I yeah. I, I agreed with what you're saying. But yeah. I think um, because what you're addressing is what you're talking about right now in this fact that um, it's a it's to agree that we want these. I guess you're calling it embracing a fear or uncertainty, and I haven't heard that before, but it makes sense. Um, but what you were, I think, what you were saying in that status, um, and kind of what you're saying right now, is this idea that um, it's it's rooted in a fear, um, mm-hmm. and we can give that up because when we've when we've embraced the fear and this need for protection, it's created this culture. Um, it's created this culture that then proliferates from there. And the culture, I think what you were saying in that status was the idea that the reason we have this culture or the reason that these rights are so fervently upheld mm-hmm. actually comes from a stereotypical white guy with a gun who also at the same time probably needs to employ one to the least extent um, in terms of just like demographics and like personal protection. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally get what you're saying in the fact that we can, we could choose to give all these things up. Um, and I think it, I think it has more of a cultural, um, a culture. I think that the problem in, in the U S um, I'm totally for increasing gun control. Um, 
but I think it is a cultural problem, but it's a cultural problem that could go away through legislation in the fact that we need to like stop. Um, we need to stop acting like this is an important thing um, because we basically teach our kids to think it's an important thing. And people move to the U.S. and then think it's an important thing. Like half my family are immigrants and um, they care about like that kind of stuff and that doesn't really make any sense in their context. And um, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I, the, the only, th- the, the argument that I get in terms of like wanting to own guns or like needing guns um, is from this right to like self-preservation, um, which I get. Um, at the same time, I've never owned a gun. Um, I've shot a gun a couple times. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I'll have a gun at some point. Uh, my, I have a couple guns in my house right now just because I have a family member who's like moving and he just like stored them here. And I'm like yeah. really, really afraid to touch them, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid it's just going to blow up in my face. Um, yeah. Because I, I think of it as just like it's bizarre that these like killing machines are glorified. It's like yeah. it's such a weird thing to find identity in. That's the, one of the most bizarre things to me. Like and, you're and into yet, music, you're into sports, right, but like right. what the hell? I'm really into killing machines. Like what? <laughs> and it's yet, such a it, bizarre thing. Yes, and yet culturally, it is one of our longest running symbols of identity, Memes. which is a is a, is a problem. Is a huge yeah. problem. And it was established. And the problem is the the real problem is the foundations uh, on which that identity was born because that identity was born in a time where literally people were not viewed as equals. If the constitution was written yesterday, I'd have far less of a problem. Well, one, the second amendment probably wouldn't be in there, but two, like we, we, you got to understand the time frame that the, when, when at the same time guns were being established as this, this, this sort of um, tool or symbol of identity, the same those the same when that when that ideology was being born the ideology of whiteness was also being born and that's that so when i on on facebook i believe the exact quote was we you know america doesn't have a gun problem we have a problem with guns and that problem is i i'm misquoting myself but and that problem <laughs> is 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 rooted in white i think it was white uh fragility or the or the notion of whiteness and but these ideas were being born in the same cauldron at the same time. The idea that there, I think the idea of whiteness is like a very interesting idea because it's, it's at the foundation of what it means to be an American. Like you have to understand this notion of whiteness, like whiteness is like this idea created to otherize other people in order to convince people that it's okay to do whatever you want with other people with impunity. I mean, the only way you get, enslaved Africans is by convincing yourself that you not being the same as these people gives you the right to do whatever you want to them. So this idea, and then other immigrants would come from other countries like Italy and, and, uh, and Ireland. Ireland and, Oh, well those guys aren't white. We may have the same skin color, but they're not white. So we can treat them however we want. Like whiteness is this uniquely sort of uh, American thing that has since branched out and has now become a Western thing. But this idea of whiteness was born in America to subjugate others. And at the same time that we're, we're, we're generating all these other ideologies that are uniquely American, they're all built on top of an economy, a, a society of people. 
um, and institutions that are based on the idea that there is an identity called whiteness and the only thing that makes it it's it makes it unique is that it's not these other things and so white people the, the sort of the people who identified with whiteness let's put it that way would go on to adopt other things from that similar time period and take those as part of the white identity, like guns, like Confederacy, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you, whatever you want to, whatever you want to talk about, like whatever, whatever thing, you know, white people can just pick and choose and adopt and take those things. So guns is definitely a part of that. Um, yeah. This whole idea that you need, and or the idea of re- re- rebel ism rebelism uh rebellion like the idea of like not trusting the government uh or not trusting the people who you deemed have other motives than you and needing a means to protect yourselves from them that whole idea it's all built on this idea that like there is something about me that makes me different i.e whiteness and there are people out there that exist in conflict with that not not even that they're actively trying to take it away, but they, their very existence challenges that. And that if your identity is based on something that other people challenge just by existing, you're you're in the wrong business <laughs> because yeah. we're a world of people who are different. Like, you know, like. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. You being a fan of hockey doesn't challenge that in any way. Like, but the moment. Well, if you were you, a Ducks fan, it might. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I don't know who would be a Ducks fan. I mean, they're pretty lame. Um, no, but you, you get what I'm saying? Like, and, and, it, and it's not just with whiteness. That's just what this country is built on. But there's other things. Like, if we take sports, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. The moment I allow someone, someone's fandom of the, of the Philadelphia Eagles to, it be in conflict with my fandom simply because their fandom exists. Now it's toxic. That's how you get people who murder each other at, uh, at, um, LA Dodger games. Like, so it's, it's not the gun is the gun itself is not the problem. It's this idea that guns represent the ability or the necessity to defend yourself from people who are trying to uproot your, false sense of identity that is the problem because if i'm not part of your identity your chosen whiteness identity i am by definition in conflict with your identity and guns now become a perfectly viable symbol to not only uphold your your identity but to also defend your identity from me i.e kill me so i'm already a target whether i've done anything to you or not and the only way for me to even try to coexist with you and not be fall victim to your defense of your identity is to adopt elements of your identity that make you comfortable enough to coexist with me, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's a huge problem. So when I say white, when I say gun, the, you know, the gun fascination in America and the, the problem with guns in America is that it's tied to white fragility, this idea of white fragility. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the, the whole idea of whiteness is a is like standing on thin ice. Your, your whole, your whole idea of who you are and what makes you valuable to society is something thin. It's a veneer and, and, and people will protect that to the death and they'll protect that by killing other people. And so it's not just, we got to get rid of guns. It's, we have to uncouple guns from this fragile white identity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that, that was the argument I was making. I'm glad I have this platform to go in depth. Cause I, I you know, Facebook is really hard to do that, but that's, that's yeah. what I was, that's what I was saying. Yeah, I, I I think that's generally what I got from it. A little, maybe a little bit different. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, it's where the it's where the it's where the root causes. I mean, I have a, a ton of thoughts on 
on all of that. Um, one thing that might be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's comedic, but I would say that um, when when people specifically talk about race and slavery as like American problems, yeah. actually, I actually get borderline defensive because um, <laughs> I I think we should send the bill to the Queen. Um, yeah. You know, you, sh- you know, you should pay reparations, Queen Elizabeth, uh, mm-hmm. the Portuguese royal family. Um, the biggest, it's so ridiculous and pisses me off that, um, Europe gets away like Scott free when they invented all of this crap, um, (laughs) and really proliferated it. Okay. So we became America at some point and then it was our problem, right? Then Americans were invented all of this stuff, all of this, uh, stuff was invented by them. Um, you know, the biggest, the biggest slave port in the world, the, like the majority of the, the slaves that came to the new world came through Portugal. Um, mm-hmm. and the, you know, not that Americans didn't have the same sick and twisted way of looking at it, but in, in Brazil, right. it was a factory. It was like, mm-hmm. it was like, they just pumped as many black slaves in as possible. And they knew that they were only going to live, you know, five years after they started, um, you know, working, basically working them to death, they pumped some more in and it was just a drill that they ran. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I always like, I'm not saying it's not an American problem, but it's so weird to me that the whole world kind of like acts like this is this is something we did or we created but i think europe was somehow really strategic it was a great pr move that they could like colonize the whole world enslave the whole world and then like just retreat back to their crappy little continent and then act like oh (laughs) but it was america that did it um it's just ridiculous but anyway um but 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 one of the things that you said that i it took me a long time to realize this and you're totally right but this idea that whiteness is like defined against other people Um, I never, I never really knew that that was a sentiment or the way things are. But, um, so I have a friend who, um, he's from India and he speaks multiple languages and he was telling me how, when he speaks to his mom, um, and instead of calling somebody white, they, they refer to them as American. And that Mm -hmm. means, that means white. Um, and he said that's really common in Spanish. So he speaks Spanish too. Um, and he says that in Spanish, they do that too. And that was so weird and eye-opening to me because, you know, half my family are immigrants and they're not American and they're white. And I'm like, what? I never really tied whiteness to being American, but it totally is when you understand the history more so, um, right. as you're talking about. And mm-hmm. I, I remember a student, we were talking about race in class and somebody mm-hmm. saying like, somebody said something to the effect of like, and, and there actually was a slogan in like slave times in the u.s mm-hmm. and even afterwards where it's like like one drop of black like spoils there's some saying along those lines right yeah and i remember somebody saying something like yeah well obviously you know if you have you know just a little bit of something else in you you're like not white anymore i'm like what the heck like that is the most <laughs> bizarre way of seeing the world but you're right like that is the way that that is used that's 100 percent the way that, that that it's used where all of a sudden, if you have anything else in you, if as if there were like white blood and black blood, right? If you had, <laughs> right. Uh, if you had anything else yeah. in you, uh, all of a sudden you're not white anymore, yes. as opposed to the opposite, which is like so. I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying. I don't really have a. Uh, I don't detract from it. And the other thing I, I always think about, which is kind of different, but um, just the fact that you know, in 1776, um, you know, the Constitution was after that, but um, just the late 18th century. Um, if you wanted to kill some people, a knife probably would have been better. Um, right. <laughs> you know, the, the time it took to reload, um, right. and the accuracy of their firearms is just a totally different world. Right. Um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm, I love history. I'm not a professional, but I did major in history, um, along with philosophy. But I remember I wrote this one paper in my like military history class. I don't even know what it was, um, about the mini ball or the minier ball. I don't even know how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Um, but the reason why so many people died in, in the civil war is because they invented rifling in barrels. Um, and all of a sudden you could hit your target but they were still lining up in lines like they did in, you know, the 1700s. And so it was like target practice, like, okay, blow this guy's head off, blow this guy's head off. And everybody was just dying. And they're like, what the heck? This is totally different. Yeah. It's not like we fire and, you know, cross your fingers that you hit somebody 10 people over, you know, <laughs> so it's just right. a totally different ball game now. Um, yeah. But so yeah. let me, let me ask you this. So the, cause I hear this argument a lot. Cause there's, there's really two main types of like, you know, strong gun advocates that I come across online. There's those who like are like, oh, I need a gun because, you know, it's the obvious sort of it's tied to their identity type people. Right. The the other side of it is people who are like I these these people would maybe be hesitant to call themselves conservatives. A lot of them are libertarians. They'd call themselves libertarians who who mm. who think the Second Amendment is as important today as it's always been and we need g to own a firearm so that we can protect ourselves from some sort of tyrannical government yeah, takeover where where the government or the law enforcement or whoever decides to stop or chooses to ignore your rights and just wants to and you need that as a as a form of defense against that what what is your reaction to that sentiment uh good luck i mean <laughs> <laughs> the way the way i look at it is i mean I, this is going to sound patriotic, but it's just, uh, it's just a matter of fact. Like mm -hmm. I remember watching a documentary and somebody said from somebody from a different country said like, good luck trying to go to war against America. Um, right. and that's the way I look at it too. Like, okay, yeah, you're going to defend yourself against like our military. Like what a joke. <laughs> um, right. It's like not going to happen. And I think it's just a fantasy land. Um, I, I tend to be, it's not that I don't sympathize with this, like, the rights aspect and the libertarian aspects and the defending yourself. I just tend to be pretty realistic about a lot of this stuff where it's like, what are you actually going to do? Right. I might have sympathy, but, but like, first off, if the world collapses into that, like most of you, most of you people, literally you people uh, <laughs> are going to be crying at your home, like wondering why yeah. 4chan's down and you can't like post any more hatred, you know, um, right. it, like your whole world is collapsing. You really think that like, that's going to be important. No, you're going to be like trying to figure out how to like feed your family or something, or you're just going to like panic and not be able to do anything. Um, yeah. I just don't, I think it's totally unrealistic and bizarre. And so I don't really care yeah, I, to be honest. I think I think America is uh, America is one of of all the, the the countries in contention. America is definitely one of the the greatest places to be if you value your voice being heard and you sort of value a sense of like normalcy. Um, and I think um, I think people really people who make this argument about the Second Amendment I think are really either dismissive or extremely ignorant of the way American government works and like what makes this country work. And to think that there would be any amount of incentives aligned in the correct way to make any branch of the government or the government as a whole feel like they would be better off by subjugating the American people. I think it is just, is ludicrous. Like that's a ludicrous idea. Like, the people in power in government, at, even at the highest places in power, want 
normalcy. They want things to be business as usual and they want to make as much money and stay in power as long as possible. Yeah. Every, every Senator wants that every house of representatives. Well, all you, you got to do, do is look at the stimulus checks, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> the whole point, the whole point is they want people to spend money, right? Yes. You know, you have to actually keep your voters happy and your populace confident that yes. things are going to stay the same in order for them to put money in your pockets. Yes. America, um, America has almost zero manufacturing. We are 100% a, a consumer based economy. There is no money and no power in sub in tyrant in tyrannically subjugating all of your citizens into submission in the United yeah, States. Yeah. Now other, point. other, other countries, there may be some incentives aligned to where the government wants to do that in a, in a place like, uh, Mexico like Zimbabwe. or Zimbabwe, or where they're Venice, just trying to Venice. get the money from the people. Yes. Not where, that they're uh, yes. spending it. <laughs> yes. Where yeah. there's a limited, when there's a limited number of resources and whoever has all the resources wins, it doesn't matter if everyone starves because no one has any money to spend anyway. Yeah. The United States, does not operate that way. There is no, I can't think of one single reality in which the United States government at any point would say, you know what? It's going to be, be it's going to be better in our interests if we just take over everything and just kind of leave people powerless, right? Yeah. That's, it just doesn't, so to me, like you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't see America as this bastion of freedom and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be whoever you want to be and and all of that, but also be afraid of some government that's going to think it's worth their time and money to subjugate you into submission. It just, to, to me, the ideas are not are not compatible. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, the beauty incentives of, aren't there. I mean, if you look yeah, at it just like a purely capitalist way of looking right. at it, the incentives aren't there. You can make a lot more money by getting people to keep spending money on Amazon. <laughs> yes. The government makes more money. The government makes more money and has way more power with you thinking everything is fine and you being happy and spending money than they do with you being locked up in some kind of camp or in, in destitute poverty. Like they're doing, we have a virus that's yeah. making people sick. And the government's doing everything in their power to make sure you still have money. Like, I don't know what planet people think they're living on where the United States government is going to become, you know, freaking communist China or, you know, any anything else. You know, it's just yeah. it's not going to happen. But anyway, um, I don't want to get too far into that farther than we already we already are. Yeah. Um, so we got about I say we, we can do maybe another 10, 15 minutes if you want. I have maybe one other conversation we can talk about. Do you have anything else to say about um, guns or any of that? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, cool. The last topic I wanted to touch on with you because it was in the news recently is I want to talk about prison. I want to talk about punishment, sort of the ethics of that, um, because I was there was a story where um, you've I'm sure we've all heard the story where um, Lori Laughlin and her cohorts and all those people oh, who yeah, did yeah. The, the college the college fraud thing. So Lori Laughlin is apparently going to enter into a plea deal where. She's going to plead guilty to, I think, one count of or two counts of checks and checks and mail fraud or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And she's going to serve, which is kind of just like the catch all for like you did some bad stuff. <laughs> right. And we could put you in prison for it. Right. So she's going to go to prison uh, for two months and then is going to be two years under basically house arrest or supervised release and have to pay like two hundred fifty thousand dollars in a fine or something like that. Mm. All right. So I think that the idea of prison for most people who have even committed most crimes is the wrong approach. So I'm under the philosophy that 
prison or locking away someone, removing someone's freedom to like go somewhere, like to lock someone away, away from society, it should only be reserved for people who um, have proven that they are a continued danger to either themselves or somebody or the rest of society. And I don't think that most people who commit crimes fall into that category. Um, and I think that sending someone to prison for most crimes is the wrong approach because I think because of the nature of prisons, because we send people to prison for anything and everything, uh, people are often worse off. And because of, of, of the, our inability to reintroduce people into society, people are often much worse off going to prison than they would have been with some other kind of, um, action taken. And I, I really don't think Lori Laughlin, even though I think she's terrible, she made a terrible decision and did something bad, uh, that is just gross. And like, is the opposite of what someone in her position should be doing. She should be paying for other people to go to college. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't comment, think she um, should be going to prison. Yeah. Quick comment on that. I just thought it was hilarious that this was a big news story because I'm like, right. what did you think? Like this, this is, people do that all the time. This is what we assume that, that that's the stereotype of USC. Like that's the funny part of where her kids got into school. The university of spoiled children where, you know, a big eye opening thing is the fact that, um, I found out that the, the average GPA that gets into USC is like the same, if not lower than it is at APU. Um, which is crazy because, yeah. you know, USC has such a, you know, good reputation and it is a good school. Um, but why do you think that is? Because of people <laughs> like Lori Loft? Like, that's literally the stereotype. The, the idea that anybody was surprised by this. I'm like, this is not a story. Like, why are we even hearing about this? School, this is just school. life. <laughs> Dude, Ivy League schools exist because of this. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, like, what do you, you know, what do you think dowries are and endowments and like all like, Come on, man. Uh, there's a reason there's a name on every building. Um, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so what should anyway we do? I don't, what, but what do you think right. we should do with her? So with her, I think I think she should pay some kind of like fine that is reflective of sort of in I don't know who's going to run the calculus on it or the uh, the algebra, but some <laughs> kind of fine that is equal to. Uh, the amount of cost or damages that she did to the education system by doing whatever she did. I, I don't, I don't think I, I, you know, I, I'm, it's hard for me. Like I'm not someone who endorses the idea of punishment to begin with. Like I do think that there should be some kind of um, acknowledgement of when someone breaks the law and some sort of way to reconcile the damages that were done. But right, reconcile of, is probably the important thing right. to do. Right? Reconciling is, is hugely important. But in terms of like punitive measures being taken, I, I don't know if I support punishment in that sense, because if, if we're going to take a deterministic worldview, I mean, I don't think people are you know, fully in charge of their, you know, their decision making at all. So like, so to, so to punish someone for making a bad decision just seems wrong to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I I would love to hear you react to that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I got plenty of thoughts, but I I would generally say that the, the prison system is kind of dumb and I'm not really interested in punitive stuff either. Um, I think I remember in high school, um, in speech and debate class, which I don't know if I learned a lot about debating, but it made me look at my own values a lot. Um, mm-hmm. and when we were in high school, do you remember the Tukey Williams case? Yes. Um, and the Somewhat. idea that he could, I think he appealed to, so the story was that he was, uh, 
Oh boy, should I say whether he was Crips or Bloods? Because I don't know which one, and now I'm gonna be in trouble. He was one of those. He was a Crip. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he, when he was 17, 18, I don't know. When he was young, he they like robbed a liquor store, and he killed two people during the robbery or something. Uh I don't, I don't remember what the exact story was, but but the point is that he was on death row, and he was appealing to I think Schwarzenegger at the time. Um, to get off death row. And I remember I gave this speech, and remember I grew up, grew up in Glendora, which is about the most conservative place in California. I gave this speech about how um, prison should be like rehabilitating, not punishing. And I gave all this evidence for why I don't think Tukey should be given like the death penalty. Um, and I was probably 15 or 16 at the time. So I really probably didn't know enough to make those decisions. And I'm not going to stand by my argument because I don't actually know enough about him. Um, but the point is that it changed my mind on, um, this idea of like, what's the point of locking people up, punishing them. Um, and for lack of a better word, I'm going to say fix, but we, we should figure out how to get people to be, um, you know, productive members of society. Cause you, I mean, you look at the data and repeat offenders is, you know, it's, it's crazy. Um, and one of the tax credits in the program that I was talking about before, which I keep referencing, it's called the work opportunity tax credit. Um, but companies get paid to hire felons. Um, but that means you got to admit to being a felon. Um, and, um, most of the employers that we would like service for this stuff didn't want to ask that question. They didn't want to ask that question because they didn't want to know. Um, and because they might, they almost didn't want that to be a part of their hiring practices because it felt weird. It was like, I don't want to know that. And, and they didn't need to because we're asking through a third party, but it made them uncomfortable to even hmm. be detecting that question, even if they never heard the answer. Um, right. So I'd say, like, I totally agree. We have to figure out how to make it. This sounds bad. Well, I don't know if it sounds bad, but there has to be something productive about prison. Um, and I, I think you're totally right. Like, what, what are you, what are we accomplishing um, you have to figure out how to either help these people do something to change their lives or change their current scenario. Um, so I lived down the street from a, and I think this is the right term, but I lived down the street from a halfway house. Uh-huh. And when I say halfway house, I'm talking about, you know, people getting out of prison, not yeah, trans transitional living, I think is the, is like the, the politically correct term. Yeah. But, but I, I just mean it's not a sober living house. Whenever right, I say halfway like, house, people think it's like sober living. Oh yeah, no transitional housing. I think is like the, is yeah. like the yeah. So like people, a year people ago, who are transitioning back into society. Exactly, from they yep. live. It's like two or three doors down from me. But anyway, um, the city of Rancho did like a raid on all of the transitional houses. I had to think for uh-huh. a second. All the transitional yeah. houses in Rancho, uh-huh. and rearrested like a couple hundred people or something. You can look it up. There was a news yeah. article I could send it to you um, because they were in violation of their parole. So they like raided these places and then found people with like, cause you know, they have like weird restrictions to the rest of us. Like you can't even be drinking or something. Right. You know, there, right, there right. are, it doesn't even necessarily mean you have drugs, but I think there were drugs in plenty of the scenarios. Yeah, of course. Of um, course. But, but it was just like, wow, that's like really dumb. Like we, we <laughs> yeah. put them, but we put them back into society and then, we just, you know, pay, like, think about how much money that cost. Like the hundred, literally like hundreds of police officers, like working overtime. And I I came home from work and there were like 
six or eight cop cars on our street, people in cuffs. Like there was like a friggin' like SWAT team looking vehicle, like mobile assault vehicles. Like this is a million dollar raid on the house down my street to like address three guys, guys for smoking. I guess they, I don't know if they could smoke weed, but whatever for doing something like stupid. And it's like, Jesus could that million dollars could be spent figuring out how to get these people back in society. It's like, and it would be illegal for them to do that to anyone else. You know what I mean? To just randomly show up to your house and raid your house. Like it just, it is all backwards. And and I think it comes down to, it comes down to incentives. The, the incentives are in place. All the incentives in the, the, the sort of the prison industrial complex is to just lock people away uh, in prisons, as many people as you can, as cheaply as you can so that you can get grants and stuff from the government and it, there's no incentive to do anything else with people. Like, right. Which I think UBI, back to UBI, helps solve the same problem because it's related yes. to what I was talking about before. We have all this red tape and these perverted incentive systems that just don't – they don't solve the problem and they cost a bunch of money. Yes, yes. Like most I, – I, I am a person who would argue that in the United States, most crimes that happen that send people to prison, so most felonies – I, w- I would be willing to wager, and I don't have the, the statistics in front of me, I would imagine most of those crimes are rooted in some kind of um, sense of desperation or necessity. Oh, absolutely. Or, yeah. So it's like, what what good does – because if you ask most people walking the street, hey – is it okay? Is it okay to kill somebody? Is it okay to rob somebody? Most people would say no. Yeah. An overwhelming majority of people would say no. And yet we have prisons full of people who have done those things. So the it, the interesting question is obviously not, well, man, uh, how do we punish the people who have done this? The interesting question is, obviously most people uh, wouldn't say these things are wrong. So what are the extenuating circumstances that are causing people to do these crimes and how do we mitigate those? That is the interesting question, but that's a hard question. It's a big question and it's an expensive yeah. question. And and most people have deemed it's not a question worth asking. So and because it, it's cheaper and easier, we think, to just throw people away and never look at them again and pretend they're not. Yeah, there. and it makes us feel good. Yeah, it makes us feel good. You know, you do the crime, you do the time. I mean, it's just but when you think about it, that's it's gross. Like, obviously, someone who commits a crime, most people who commit a crime are are doing so out of some sense of necessity. Uh, so instead of trying to help them and figure out a way for them to never do that again or need, feel the need to do that again, we're yeah. just going to throw them away in a box with a bunch of other people who have suffered the same the circumstances thing, the only thing or worse. The flies in the face of is the Lori. How do you Lofley? know how to say your last name? Is there's Lord no Lofley? necessity there, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, I'm, but you're never gonna like get be able to get a, a, a round greed, I guess. So uh, that was the only thing I was gonna add is that I guess the way that's ways that crimes are committed is either necessity or greed. Yeah, but they're all rooted. I would say they're all rooted in a sense of in a sense of lack. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, Lori Laughlin's sense of lack is like, well. Uh, man, if my daughter doesn't go to USC, then she'll be somehow less. Then she'll never be one of the spoiled children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She'll never be as successful as I want her to be, or she'll never reach realize her potential the way I want her to be. So I need to do whatever it takes to make. When in reality, and we're getting back to you know rich kids, in, in rich kids <laughs> and internal senses of value. Yeah. Um. You know that it's all it's all man. It's all about getting back to that internal sense of value. That's what it, I mean. It's really what it is. I mean. Yeah. Um, Figure and, out how and, to love yourself with, without 
you know, the Trojans. Right. <laughs> and it's also, it's not just when I say my brother went know, to USC, by the way, that's funny. That's very funny. Did, did he, uh, did you pay to get him on the crew team? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but it, it's in, when I say internal senses of value, it's yes, finding your own internal sense of value. But the beauty of that is in finding your own internal sense of value. And this is the value of meditating and, and sort of self-actualizing is, the beauty in finding your own internal value is that you realize that because value can be found internally, every not just you have value, but every other person has the same value because they're also another person. Does that make sense? And so when you realize that, then it like it becomes a lot harder to rob somebody or to wrong somebody or to, you know, to do any of the things to shoot somebody, to think of somebody yeah. as less than because of the color of their skin, because you start to realize like the same way I have value just from being me. That person has value just for being them and them being them doesn't take away from my value. So, you know, and when we're able to get to that point, I think we've, we've figured it out, you know? Yeah. I I mean, I generally agree with everything you said. I'm not very good at responding to things unless we got to fight about it. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) nah, dude, that's good. I think, I think we could stop it there, man. We're going on two hours. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that was, that was that was a great convo, dude. I, you killed it. Uh, where can people find uh, your work if they want to find you on the internet? I mean, I got I got nothing in terms of stuff that I like publish or put out there because uh, I honestly I don't have the energy to do that. This is a, a better outlet, but I'm where do you teach if people want to take your philosophy class at Barstow College? And now in California, you can take. Um, online classes at like any of the different colleges. So if you get into one, you get into all of them. It's called OEI. And yeah, you can take my philosophy classes or religion classes. Teach a cool. Bible class and a world religions class too. Oh, I'm doing a, uh, I'm doing an episode on uh, religion soon um, with a buddy of mine who went from being a, a, a seventh day Adventist pastor to a, a Catholic priest. Uh, so he saw the light. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, within the last uh, couple years, so That's I'm gonna have him on soon. Um, yeah, I should have you on. We talk about uh, religion and stuff too. I forget that you teach religion too. Awesome. If you can find more of this podcast um, at weeklyregular.com or at weeklyregular on social media, you can find more from me um, at uh, at Asan the DJ on social media or on my website at asan.com. Uh, Philosophy Drew, thank you so much, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs>